You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Galettes. My galette obsession began with a mild, wild mushroom and blue cheese galette that a friend and I used to make every Christmas. It is unbelievably good. It will always be welcome anywhere. Have you made it yet? You should. I moved on to a roasted butternut squash and caramelized onion galette the next fall. And oh man, I would not kick that out of the kitchen for eating crackers. That's how the saying goes, right? The next winter was all about Eastern Europe with a cabbage and mushroom galette with chopped hard-boiled egg, dill, and greens. I bet you didn't know a little tart could be so filling, huh? And then... I apparently stopped making savory galettes, and it's such a shame because what each of these has in common is a crust so amazing you will not believe it came out of your kitchen. Seriously. When I made it again yesterday and I was sure, I I was not sure I could tell it apart from the store-bought puff pastry. I'm not bragging. It's a fine, fine recipe I adapted from an old Williams-Sonoma cookbook. I've been looking around for something that would allow zucchini and ricotta to play off of each other, and I found it in an old cook's illustrated recipe for a tart. I played around with the levels and ended up with this, a simple summer dinner or an appetizer for something more intense. Zucchini are piled high at the markets around here right now, but even if they weren't, I think you could easily swap yellow summer squash or even eggplant. I'd cut it thinner so it cooks faster. I'm curious to try this with tomatoes, too. Perhaps if you seeded them, it wouldn't get too soggy. But mostly, and most importantly, it's a perfect, it's perfect the way it is. It begs for a big green salad and a glass of dry white wine, and frankly, so do I. Here's the recipe. Zucchini and ricotta galette. Crust is adapted from Williams-Sonoma. The filling is adapted from a Cook's Illustrated Tart. I might be tempted to double the cheese filling next time I make this. It puffed beautifully in the oven, but then it deflated a bit. Then again, at their current levels, the zucchini and cheese balance each other nicely. There's something to be said for not fixing what ain't broken, eh? Since I oohed and awed over this crust, for those that like to dissect recipes as I do, I thought I'd note that, funnily enough, it's an almost match for my favorite pie dough in technique as well save two ingredients, which apparently make all of the difference. One quarter cup of sour cream and two teaspoons of lemon juice. What this makes is an even flakier, softer pastry, the kind that leaves croissant crumbs everywhere. I know the next obvious question is, um, so can I use this for pie dough? But I don't advise it. It's too soft. It will get soaked and deflated under all of that heavy baked fruit. It's at its best when it is free form, just like this. This serves six. For the pastry, you'll need one and a quarter cups of all-purpose flour chilled in the freezer for 30 minutes, one quarter teaspoon of salt, eight tablespoons or one stick of cold unsalted butter cut into pieces and chill again, one quarter cup of sour cream, two teaspoons of fresh lemon juice, one quarter cup of ice water. For the filling, you'll need one large or two small zucchinis sliced into one quarter inch thick rounds. You'll also need one tablespoon plus one teaspoon of olive oil, 
one medium garlic clove minced, that's about a teaspoon, one half cup of ricotta cheese, one half cup, about one ounce of grated Parmesan cheese, one quarter cup or one ounce of shredded mozzarella, and one tablespoon of slivered basil leaves. For the glaze, one egg yolk beaten with one teaspoon of water. To make the dough, you're going to whisk together the flour and salt in a large bowl. Sprinkle bits of butter over the dough and using a pastry blender, cut it into the mixture until it resembles coarse meal with the biggest pieces of butter the size of tiny peas. In a small bowl, whisk together the sour cream, lemon juice, and water and add this to the butter flour mixture. With your fingertips or a wooden spoon, mix in the liquid until large lumps form. Pat the lumps into a ball and do not overwork the dough. Cover with plastic wrap and refrigerate for one hour. To make the filling, you're going to spread the zucchini out over several layers of paper towels, sprinkle with one half teaspoon salt and let drain for 30 minutes. Gently blot the tops of the zucchini dry with paper towels before using. In a small bowl, you're going to whisk the olive oil and the garlic together and then set aside. In a separate bowl, mix the ricotta, parmesan, mozzarella, and one teaspoon of the garlicky olive oil together and season with salt and pepper to taste. Prepare the galette. Preheat the oven to 400 degrees. On a floured work surface, roll the dough out into a 12-inch round. Transfer to an ungreased baking sheet, though if you line it with parchment paper, it will be easier to transfer to a pie or to a plate later. Spread the ricotta mixture evenly over the bottom of the galette dough, leaving a two-inch border, and then shingle the zucchini attractively on top of the ricotta in concentric circles, starting at the outside edge. Drizzle the remaining tablespoon of the garlic and olive oil mixture evenly over the zucchini, and then fold the border over the filling, pleating the edge to make it fit. The center will be open. Brush the crust with egg yolk glaze. Bake the galette until the cheese is puffed, the zucchini is slightly wilted, and the galette is golden brown, 30 to 40 minutes. Remove from the oven, sprinkle with basil, and then let stand for 5 minutes. Then slide the galette onto a serving plate, cut into wedges, and serve hot, warm, or at room temperature. Next, we've got a recipe from eatingwell.com. For a cucumber sandwich, how sophisticated. This creamy, crunchy cucumber sandwich recipe strikes a lovely balance between decadent and light. The cream cheese yogurt spread complements the crisp, refreshing cucumber, while the hearty flavor and texture of the whole wheat bread holds everything together. So, some questions. Can cucumber sandwiches be made ahead? The answer, no. Do not make cucumber sandwiches ahead of time. The moisture from the cucumbers will release and cause the sandwiches to become soggy. It's best to serve cucumber sandwiches the day you make them. You can make the cream cheese mixture ahead and refrigerate it in an airtight container for up to one day. And what goes well with cucumber sandwiches? Well, you can serve these cucumber sandwiches with your favorite store-bought or homemade potato chips, cauliflower chips, sweet potato chips, or beet chips. They also pair well with a chilled soup and crunchy salad, and there's more recipes at eatingwell.com. For this one, 
Here's the ingredients. Two ounces of cream cheese at room temperature, one tablespoon of low-fat plain Greek yogurt, one tablespoon of sliced fresh chives, one tablespoon of chopped fresh dill, one quarter teaspoon of ground pepper, two slices of whole wheat sandwich bread, and one third cup of thinly sliced English cucumber. Here's the directions. You're going to stir the cream cheese, yogurt, chives, dill, and pepper together in a small bowl until well blended, and then spread the mixture evenly on one side of each bread slice. Top one slice with the cucumber slices, and then top with the other bread slice, cream cheese side down. Cut the crust from the sandwich and cut it in half diagonally. I love that. Simple and yet yummy. <laughs> Next, recipe back from Smitten Kitchen for lemon ricotta pancakes with sautéed apples. Now this looks pretty scrumptious. I haven't had pancakes for quite a while and I'd like to make this recipe right now. But you know how you know it's November? I actually made breakfast this morning. I'm sorry if that shattered your pristine image of me. Sure, I occasionally cook big, elaborate brunches for friends or family, and I even spoil myself from time to time with yo yogurt, with pumpkin butter, and pepita granola. But pretty consistently, Saturday and Sunday morning, I chew on my fingernails until Alex wakes up, or sometimes, if I'm really hungry and he's still sleeping, the boy is a sleep machine. I'll sit next to him on the bed and stare until he wakes up and brings us either bagels from Murray's or eggs from the diner. Yes, you heard that right. I get a fried egg and toast takeout. Yes, I'm ashamed to know myself sometimes. Nonetheless, as it appears that despite my caveats, this nablo pomo thing is on, I figure that if nothing else, I can use it to clean out the refrigerator. Have you ever bought something but forgotten to eat it, then found six weeks later that it was in the very back of the refrigerator, still in perfect condition? Did it make you feel wildly uncomfortable about the preservatives that must be in your food? Did you get over it and eat it anyway? Well, I did. I found some little green apples in the produce drawer this morning that Alex, despite loving green apples, had been staunchingly avoiding because they had actually ripened. True story, the boy does not like ripe fruit. And then there was some leftover ricotta from a dish that we'll get to next week and a lemon that really had better days. But wouldn't my grandmothers be proud that I hadn't wasted food? Well, I really know how to make a dish sound appetizing, don't I? Mmm, old apples and a lemon ready for the retirement home. I bet you can't wait to try this one. Oh, but you should, even with fresher ingredients. These lemon ricotta pancakes were delicious, light and ever so crisp at the edges, and the sautéed apples had all the best qualities of apple pie, including making the apartment smell decadent. Breakfast this morning just triumphed over anything available from the diner, and I question why I didn't do this more often. Could it be time to turn over a new leaf? What if I use those hours between the time I woke up and Alex did for something useful, not just reading Jezebel and watching the Food Network? Maybe Nablo Pomo will make me a better person. That's the November uh, write a novel thing, I believe. And then I spied the dishes in the sink. Two saute pans, two spatulas, cutting board, knife, pile of peels, empty containers, a stray lemon seed, plates, bowls, forks, 
Oh my gosh. Corner Diner, I will not forsake you again. But here's the recipe anyway. It turned out really good. Lemon ricotta pancakes with sautéed apples. This from Gourmets of September of 1991. Getting a little vintage here. Servings. This makes about 12 3 to 4 inch pancakes. For the sautéed apples, you need 4 large Granny Smith apples, peeled, cored, and sliced. 2 tablespoons of unsalted butter. 3 tablespoons of sugar. 1 half teaspoon of ground cinnamon and fresh lemon juice to taste. For the pancakes, you need four large eggs separated, one and a third cups of ricotta, one and a half tablespoons of sugar, one and a half tablespoons of freshly grated lemon zest, one half cup of all-purpose flour, and melted butter for brushing the griddle. Maple syrup as an accompaniment. So to prepare the sautéed apples, in a large heavy skillet, you're going to sauté the apples in the butter over moderately high heat, stirring occasionally for five minutes or until they're softened. Sprinkle them with the sugar and the cinnamon and cook them over moderate heat, stirring occasionally for five to ten minutes or until they're tender. Stir in the lemon juice and keep the mixture warm. Then to make the pancakes, in a bowl, you're going to whisk together the egg yolks, the ricotta, the sugar, and the zest. Add the flour and stir the mixture until it is just combined. In a bowl with an electric mixer, beat the egg whites with a pinch of salt until they hold stiff peaks and whisk about one-fourth of them into the ricotta mixture and fold in the remaining whites gently but thoroughly. Heat a griddle over moderately high heat, although Deb does not concur with this. She firmly believes that pancakes should be cooked medium-low, so try it both ways. Anyway, you heat the griddle until it's hot enough to make drops of water scatter over its surface and brush it with some of the melted butter. Working in batches, pour the batter onto the griddle by one-quarter cup measures and cook the pancakes for one to two minutes on each side or until they are golden brushing the griddle with some of the melted butter as necessary. Transfer the pancakes as they are cooked to a heat-proof platter and keep them warm in a preheated 200-degree Fahrenheit oven. Serve the pancakes with the sautéed apples and the maple syrup. We're going to follow that up with a recipe for roasted stuffed onions. Short and sweet tonight because someone... I already forgot that she had something she was supposed to be doing every day in November. I hope you don't only allow yourself to eat stuffing on Thanksgiving. I mean, why is it that something so delicious, so universally adored, at least in our families, is limited to just one day a year? We don't only eat apple pie once a year. Perish the thought. Nonetheless, I've decided to single-handedly spearhead the effort to bring stuffing into the everyday repertoire. And this... This is a marvelous place to start. Bacon, cashews, sourdough cubes, spinach, onion, and garlic are baked inside hollowed-out onion shells, allowing not just a pretty wow factor, but a neat and effective stuffing delivery vehicle for those of you not actually stuffing a bird. But this stuffing would be phenomenal any way you baked it up, 
up a bird's bum, or even in a baking dish. And I do hope you bookmark it for when you're seeking out a recipe in a few weeks. Or tomorrow night, because if you knew how good it tasted, you would not even wait that long. Here it is, Roasted Stuffed Onions from Gourmet Magazine, November of 2002. Here's a whole bunch of notes. If you only want to make the quantity for stuffed onions, even half of this is slightly more than enough, leaving you with the option of using an extra onion or two or just baking it in a pan. If you wish to make this vegetarian, simply omit the bacon and cook the filling in olive oil instead. Vegetable stock can be swapped for turkey. If you're freaked out about hollowing out an onion, believe me, I was too. I dreaded and dreaded it, and then voila, I used a melon baller. Working carefully, you'll be surprised at how easily it works. If you're stressing because you have a lot of guests coming over, you can definitely do the onion hollowing step a day or two in advance. The stuffing can be made in advance as well and then brought to room temperature before filling and baking. You're going to need 10 medium red and yellow onions, one pound of sliced bacon cut crosswise into one inch wide pieces, three celery ribs cut crosswise in, into two, I'm sorry, one and a half inch thick slices, one teaspoon salt, one teaspoon black pepper, three garlic cloves minced, 15 ounces of baby spinach trimmed and coarsely chopped, it's about 14 cups, one nine inch round loaf country style bread, one and a quarter pound, cut into half inch cubes. That'll be about 10 cups, lightly toasted. Two cups of salted roasted cashews, that's about 10 ounces, coarsely chopped. One stick or a half cup of unsalted butter, melted. And one and a quarter cups of turkey giblet stock. To make the onion shells, you're going to cut a one half inch thick slice from the tops of the onions, discarding the tops, and trim just enough from the bottoms for the onions to stand upright. Scoop out all but the outer two or three layers from each using a small ice cream scoop or a spoon. Don't worry if you make a hole in the bottom. Reserving scooped out onion and onion shells separately. So to make the stuffing, you're going to coarsely chop enough scooped out onion to measure three cups. You're going to cook the bacon in two batches in a 12-inch heavy skillet over moderate heat, stirring until crisp, about 10 minutes, and then transfer with a slotted spoon to paper towels to drain, reserving about one-third cup of fat in the skillet. Add the chopped onion, celery, salt, and pepper to a skillet and saute over moderately high heat, stirring until the vegetables are softened about five minutes. Add the garlic and saute, stirring one minute. Transfer the mixture to a large bowl and stir in the spinach, bread, cashews, butter, one cup of stock, and bacon, and then cool completely. Roast the onions. Preheat the oven to 425 degrees Fahrenheit. Arrange the onion shells open sides up in a 13 by 9 by 2 inch baking pan then add one half cup water and cover pan tightly with foil. Roast the onions in the middle of the oven until tender but not falling apart, about 25 to 30 minutes. Stuff and bake the onions. Reduce your oven temperature to 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Transfer the shells to a work surface and pour off the water in a pan. Fill the shells with stuffing, mounding it, and return it to the pan. 
Reserve five to seven cups of stuffing for the turkey cavity and then put the remaining stuffing in a buttered shallow three and a half quart baking dish and drizzle with the remaining one quarter cup of stock. Bake the stuffed onions and stuffing in the middle of the onion uncovered until heated through. That'll be about 25 minutes. For our last recipe, we're going to have one for brown butter brown sugar shorties. There are cookies and there are cookies. There are melted toffee bits and pound of chocolate brownie-like discs that require half a glass of milk for a single bite. And there are snappy little sables called punitions. <laughs> there are peanut butter cookies with chocolate pieces, peanut butter pieces, and tiny chunks of peanuts in them. And there are toasty little twice-baked shortbreads with scrapped vanilla beans inside. There are pecan squares on shortbread bases, boasting nine sticks of butter and two pounds of pecans, and there are these, brown butter, brown sugar shorties. Some cookies are packed into tins with truffles and orangettes and shipped to friends around the country, and you have other cookies with tea on a cold, windy day. Some are indulgences to bring to a holiday party, and others should be baked on a Tuesday just because. Some cookies are for others, and these should be just for you. Why? Because they're not the prettiest cookie, and they'd never be an easy sell on a table full of frosted and snowflake-shaped and red, green, white, stacked, jam-filled, chocolate-coated cookie compatriots. But if you had one in front of you right now, and I do, not to rub it in or anything, you'd understand. They're all flavor and fragrance, the kinds of things you make yourself to really understand. Nutty brown butter, dark brown sugar, a pinch of salt, a splash of vanilla, and a tumble in coarse raw sugar. They're spectacularly easy to make for all that you get out of them, which is, in short, heaven in an unforgettable one and a half inch by one quarter inch disc. Need I say more? Here's the recipe. Brown butter, brown sugar shorties adapted from gourmet. If you're worried you'll eat the whole bunch or the whole batch, and you would be, I think, if you had just one in front of you too, the greatness that is the slice and bake cookie is that you can just bake a few off at a time and then hide the rest in the fridge for a week or in the freezer for a month until the craving strikes again. The backstory behind this cookie, by the way, is that a few weeks ago I had lunch with some food bloggers, two of whom were in town for the Gourmet Institute and were joined by the nicest gourmet editor, Ian Nauer. When I came home, I immediately looked up recipes with his name attached to them and found this gem. What can I say? Awesome people clearly cook awesome things. This makes about 32 cookies. You'll need one and a half sticks of unsalted butter, one half cup of packed brown sugar, preferably dark, one teaspoon of pure vanilla extract, one and a third cups of all-purpose flour, one quarter teaspoon salt, flaky salt would be great in these, Demerara sugar, D-E-M-E-R-A-R-A, that's called sugar in the raw, or sanding sugar for rolling. This is optional. Cut the butter into four or five pieces and cook the butter in a small heavy saucepan over medium heat, stirring frequently until it has a nutty fragrance or fragrance and flex on bottom of pan, turn a light brown, anywhere from four to seven minutes. It helps to frequently scrape the solids off the bottom of the pan in the last couple of minutes to ensure even browning. Transfer butter to a bowl and chill until just firm about one hour. 
Beat together the butter and brown sugar with an electric mixer until pale and fluffy. Beat in the vanilla, then mix in flour and salt at low speed until just combined. Transfer the dough to a sheet of wax paper or parchment and form into a 12-inch log, 1.5 inches in diameter. Chill, wrapped in wax paper, until firm, about an hour. You're going to preheat your oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit with a rack in the middle. Unwrap the dough and roll it in coarse sugar if you're using, and press the granules in with the paper that you'll be using to wrap it. Slice dough into one quarter inch thick rounds, arranging one and a half inches apart on an ungreased baking sheet. Bake until the surface is dry and the edges are slightly darker, about 10 to 12 minutes. Let sit on the sheet for a minute before transferring to a rack to cool. The cookies will be quite fragile at first, but they will firm up as soon as they cool. The dough keeps chilled up to a week in the freezer, or, or I'm sorry, in the fridge, or in the freezer it'll keep for up to a month. Cookies keep in an airtight container at room temperature for one week. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.